This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. The following episode is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. It's great to be here with you. I'm Rob Sanchez. I'm the CEO of Mouth Media Network. Every now and then we have a show that really, it goes beyond the industries that we're covering. It goes beyond the verticals that we've set out. And we just think it's something that everyone should hear. Everyone should be a part of. Recently, we had one of those conversations with Cheryl Connolly, who's responsible for global trends and futuring at Ford Motor Company. It was one of those conversations that went so far beyond travel and so far beyond just the sales of cars. It really brought home the entire world. And so we wanted to share it with you. And now you'll be part of the conversation here on Travel Is Your Business. Without further ado, here's Pavan Ball and No Vertical Limits. Glad you're with us, everybody. We are here with Cheryl Connolly. She's the Global Trends and Futuring. You know, that's not really a title, Cheryl. Let me stop myself. It says Global Trends and Futuring at Ford Motor Company. I know. You know what? Most people just refer to me as the corporate futurist, but technically I am the Global Consumer Trends and Futuring Manager for Ford Motor Company. What? So futurist is better. It's easier. What does all of that mean? It means that uh, I help the organization undertake long-term thinking, planning, and strategy by looking at things that are happening outside the automotive industry. So big mm-hmm. picture, global macro trends that will shape what society values, um, how their attitudes or their behaviors evolve uh, through the scope of trends. And then you bring that intelligence back into Ford, and then you are making guided decisions based on that, whether it's culture internally or how you participate with communities? So I bring it inside of Ford and then I share it. I cascade it widely uh, to anyone who will have me, but (laughs) really across the organization. So advanced research and engineering, people who are looking 10 to 20, maybe even 30 years out, to people who are involved in product development that are five to 10 years out, designers, engineers, uh, marketing, public affairs. It's talking Mm -hmm. about what's happening right now at this very moment. And then some staff functions along the way. So I have to describe the role as functionally agnostic because it really can lend itself to a variety of different conversations. Absolutely. Now, you speak a lot globally. Uh, When we had met uh, just recently, we were talking about, you you did a TED Global talk. Uh, When you're speaking on those types of stages, what are people looking to hear from you? It would be good to ask the audience. Or how about what's your reaction? What what type of feedback have you gotten for these things? Hopefully really good feedback. One of the things that I'm always flattered by when somebody will say something like, wow, that was really interesting. They actually weren't things that I hadn't thought of before. I just never thought of in that way or Mm -hmm. in that context. So ultimately, as a futurist, I think my role is not to predict the future, but to change the way people think and hopefully spark new discussions, provoke a new way of seeing the world. Excellent. We're here talking about the 2018 trends report that uh, you recently published for Ford. Um, And the title on the top, it says, Looking Further with Ford. And um, really some amazing, amazing um, discoveries in here, which we're going to go into. But I'm curious to hear from, from, I guess, your mouth, what has been the most eye-opening discoveries that you've seen in, in the macro sense of this 
of this report. So this is our sixth edition of the trend report. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited that we actually publish this because, as we've mentioned before, historically, we consider this information proprietary and things that we shouldn't Mm -hmm. discuss outside the four walls of Ford Motor Company. I mean, it's not earth shattering stuff, but it does feed into strategic decisions and conversations. So we used to kind of guard it quite heavily. But we found that the more we shared, the richer our engagements became, our better insights, they were deeper when we started to bounce it off of other people and and have a dialogue about what was happening. So in 2012, we put together our first compilation. And the very first trend that we published was called Trust is the New Black. And I love it because five years later for our our edition uh, to celebrate this five-year anniversary, we found that Trust is the New Black was probably even more relevant in 2017 mm-hmm. than it was in 2013 when it first appeared. And even as we look at 2018, the 10 trends that we're highlighting for the next 12 to 18 months, trust is woven into almost everything that we talk about. And so I think that's a theme or a trend that cannot be underestimated, particularly in the context of consumers needing an anchor in uncertain times and brands can serve that role. Now, what I thought was super interesting just reading through this is, um, again, going back to what your role is, is, um, you know, identifying the cultural shifts and then making it relevant for business. So the reason why we're publishing this across our network, so for you listening at home, uh, this conversation is going to be super relevant for you, regardless, even if you're a participant, whether you're a participant in society as a whole, whether you have just a pulse and nothing else going on, <laughs> or if uh, you know you're running a business and you're you're making uh, strategic decisions based on that. So the way that I w- I had envisioned this conversation going is talking about the overall themes that uh, we discovered or uh, you had discovered in this research, and then uh, taking the the next topic or the next segment um, of the conversation and talking about how that guides um, decision making. I think that would companies. be great. Yeah. I think that would be great. Cool. If, and we don't have to stick to this. It doesn't need to be rigid. I just, you know, I'm just kind of throwing it out there for our, for our listener at home. Well, and I do hope your listeners will hear this material with three different ears. Um, so there's this one. I think the first is, uh, what does this need for my mean for my company, my brand, my organization? And then the secondary is, uh, what does that mean for my skill team, my function? You know, the people I work most closely on a daily basis. But the third is the one that's always the most significant. And what does that mean for me personally? I find that, you know, we listen to it and we think, oh, that's going to be great for my brand, but will that be good for my family? How will this work out for my children? So I think there's multiple layers here to kind of unpack as you think about the trends and their potential impact. So in this trends report, it's about 50 or 60 pages. Um, You have a preface where you have a personal note to the reader, which I truly, truly appreciate. I'm going to go ahead and quote uh, one line from that and we could kind of launch into conversation from there. It says, but out of the chaos and conflict, a new energy is emerging. Consumers are becoming more active, expressive, purposeful, and introspective. There is less patience for the frivolous and more emphasis on what's meaningful and impactful. And I do think that after reading through this whole End quote. I do think that after reading through, uh, you know, the trends report that 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 really echoes loudly. Can you explain out that a little bit more? Sure. I'm delighted to hear that it resonated with you because 
the letter is very heartfelt, as is all of the material that that's compiled here. But it really, this is my personal narrative, how I got to where I am. And having written five trend books, uh, you know, this year was harder than any other year. And I thought, have we run out of ideas? Have the Has the well run dry? Oh, no, we're in big trouble. But then as I stood back, I realized the struggle was that there was so much change. There was so much strife. There was so much contention in the marketplace. And once I started to recognize that what I was seeing was consistent themes surrounding disorientation, everything started to flow out of that. You know, it's it's interesting times. They're really mm-hmm. dramatic. There are lots of changes. Politics have been upended. We've seen the fall of pop culture heroes, um, a s- unrelenting spotlight on social inequity, uh, spanning from racial inequity, gender th- inequity, and income mm-hmm. inequity. And all of those things are really heavy items. And I just feel like we're at a point in time that they can't be ignored anymore. I think the news cycle is telling us that these things are relevant and people want to explore them, discuss them, look for solutions. But it, not all is dark. Not right? all is not dark. Not all is dark. So um, I guess uh, in between the ominous clouds of disorientation, as you mentioned, uh, you do go on to, to say, uh, but one thing is certain, the world is committed to looking for solutions that make us happier, healthier, and better. And it's so true, especially in the in the data with the younger demographics, which we'll go into. But I do want to unpack one thing that you mentioned, disparity. Um, you mentioned gender disparity, um, uh, economic disparity, and racial. Two things that really, really uh, um, stood out. On the economic side, 1% of the richest people in the world, um, I guess, hold... Um, or wealthier, I guess, than most of the uh, combined 99% underneath them. Shocking, right? That's dramatic. Uh, the second is on the gender equality is that women are still paid um, 24% less than men in similar roles. Equally um, shocking. Yeah. But what's nice, you know, but you went, you went on. So one thing to note, uh, again, for you um, is that these these insights are also taken from a lot of different um, colleagues of yours, uh, thought leaders, global thought leaders um, around the TED stage and elsewhere. And it goes on to say, you know, when they say these dark, ominous clouds or present the dark clouds, they always have a ray of sunshine or at least there's hope. And that's what's exciting about where we are today. So with the gender equality, they were saying that even on the educational systems now, most countries, uh, two thirds or um, uh I, I guess there there's more of a balance on the educational side of things these days. In many ways, I think that the educational side is the most hopeful side of this yeah. narrative. In third world countries, there's greater recognition that the shortest path to economic growth is to educate the girls. And mm-hmm. so you have access uh, to young girls that have never been there before. But when we worked with one of the TED fellows, a really interesting um, gentleman by the name of Kareem Abul Naga, he's done some extraordinary work uh, here in New York City, in fact, trying to look at at-risk youth, usually lower social economic, um, more vulnerable communities. And what some of the studies suggest, and I'm paraphrasing his research, is that 
the education is not necessarily better between a low income and a middle class community. Where the disparity takes place is during the what's known as the summer slide. Or the opportunity. Yeah. So so what happens is during the months of June, July, August, where there's no daily enrichment, you know, in a lower income community, there's, you know, they're no longer getting the lectures, the instruction, and they may not be having the same types of like, let's take on a summer vacation or let's go visit this museum. So they're, so they're, what they've learned is lost in rapid fashion. But if you're living in a household where parents are planning, you know, regular outings, trying to take you to new adventures, see new things, travel a little bit, or just the tenure of the conversations being taken place by college educated parents, you tend to see that slide being mitigated. And so what he mm. has, Kareem has done is said, how do we create a summer program to bring kids together, to keep them engaged? These are actually fairly simple things. It just takes purpose, you know, that you have to be thoughtful about how do we engage these young people in a way that keeps their mind curious. I said I wouldn't go into business uh, so early, but what type of responsibility does that now lend towards, you know, a Fortune 100 or 500 company um, or even small businesses that are supporting their local communities? And dare I say the government to invest in social you know, programs that promote this kind of education and support for kids? I think there's opportunity for all three of those institutions. We did a trend in our 20. 20- 17 edition called Community Ties, and we asked the question about who is best poised to bring about change? Is it the individuals? Is it the institutions? Or is it governments? And the numbers were really split across the board. The level in which I guess the level of the scale can really vary depending on access and resources. But I think everyone has an opportunity, whether you're donating used books to your local library, uh, you're offering to do tutoring, or you have a company-wide campaign. I don't, can't speak to any of the specifics, but I know Ford has uh for quite some time historically invested in education, providing educational opportunities. In fact, Bill Ford, our executive chairman, has the Better World Challenge. And, you know, improving Mm -hmm. access to education is one of the areas of focus for him. And so those programs keep that type of impact top of mind for all of us inside the company. And I don't think we're alone in that. No, you're not. And you can't be because one of your polling items uh, from the report um, is, okay, the expectation of brands to take a stand on political issues. Um, Ages 18 to 29, and I'll just say group one or the younger group because it's the same age bracket when we talk about other polls. So it's ages 18 to 29, say 52% agree. Ages 30 to 44 is about the same, even 49% agree. And ages 45 uh, plus uh, is... 36, which is a significant drop off. Um, And then when you couple this with the next stat, I'm about to say it's staggering. I'd rather pay double for a product than buy it from a brand that I think is harmful to society. Ages group one, 63% or the younger group is 63%. Um, Ages 30 to 44, 62%, pretty even again. And um, the upper bracket age is 47%, which is, is a stark drop off again. When you talk about the business impact that responsibility has, whether, and now I I understand that everything needs to be authentic and transparent, all the different buzzwords you hear out of, out of business um, thought leaders, right? 
but it is imperative that companies are paying attention to their surroundings and and supporting things in a in a um in an inclusive and societal like keeping society first because this is dollars now right so if you're a company and your your bottom line almost depends on it is that is that is that what you take away from this as well it's part of what we take away from it for sure I think sometimes companies don't have a choice. They get put into a position where they actually find themselves having to take a stand. And a perfect example of that would be what happened to Ford Motor Company early this year. We are I, we have over 200,000 employees. And so that, I imagine that means we have 200,000 different political perspectives. And so when a brand takes a stand, it's difficult because you want to make sure that it, are you representing the brand? Are you representing the people who make up the brand? Are you representing the products that you're selling? So it's it's a slippery slope. It's tough. But we were in an instance earlier this year when there was proposals on a ban for travel and immigration. And so the company had to really look what kind of impact that would create on our business. And so we had to take a stand last January and we said this proposed ban is something that we wouldn't support because we don't think it's we don't think it's good for society. It's certainly not good for our company. Our company is at its best when we are comprised of employees that are diverse and we're adopting policies of inclusion. Many people look at Ford, at least domestically, as a US brand. I mean it's Ford. It's it is the uh, the catalyst of modern manufacturing um, as we know it, and it's uh, a a large participant in why the U.S. has been so dominant historically in such a short amount of period of time uh, in our history as a country. Um, but learning more about the company and your initiatives as uh, you know as not a car company but a mobility company. But understanding uh, a lot more of the work that you're doing in emerging markets, whether it be India, um, China, and it's it's crazy to even label them as emerging markets still, but um, it, it really is a global impact company. Where, from from your vantage point, what is Ford? We're a global company, and we hope that people see us that way. I mean, of course, we originated, um, our roots are American-based. But several years ago, there was this moment, I don't know if you would call it an epiphany, but we realized we were acting too much like a multinational company. So what I mean by that is that there was Ford North America, there was Ford South America, Ford of Europe, Ford Asia Pacific, Ford Middle East and Africa, and each of them had a similar but slightly different spin on what it meant to be Ford. And at one point we said, wait a minute, as if we're going to be recognized as a truly global brand, Ford has to mean the same thing around the world. So it was a very deliberate moment to say, how do we elevate who we are from this multinational space to a truly global space? And Sometimes that means working with local partners. In China, of course, we have lots of joint ventures there. And even in India, we have recently announced a um, letter of understanding or mutual agreement that we would start to explore ways to collaborate with Mahindra, one of the, uh, mm -hmm. the domestic manufacturers there. So the whole landscape of automobiles manufacturing the industry at large is in this moment of transformation. And I'm proud that Ford is trying new things. They're 
not holding back. They're exploring things that go way beyond manufacturing, car sharing, ride sharing, mm-hmm. uh, working with cities to figure out how to improve the flow of traffic, how to get cars off the road sometimes, put more bicycles, people on bicycles, dynamic shuttles. These are things we were not talking about five years ago. So it's really exciting to see the energy that this shift has created. Now you're participating, that means uh, on a large level with with cities and municipalities and urban planning as a whole. Indeed. So one of the biggest things that we did for 2017 was launch this program called City of Tomorrow. It's a City of Tomorrow Summit and where we bring together stakeholders. So this could be uh, political leaders, urban planners, policymakers, NGOs, uh, infrastructure specialists, construction. I mean, there you run the gamut of participants, but we said we have an opportunity to make cities a means to improve people's quality of living. But that won't happen unless we're very purposeful and intentional about it. So let's come together and start talking about what solutions uh, we can present because you don't want to find yourself in the middle of it and go, oh, uh oh, it's too late. Mm-hmm. And when you think about things like autonomous vehicles, you can see exactly how that would play out because autonomous vehicle future will depend on many other stakeholders other than OEM. You've got regulators, litigators, insurers, data, privacy specialists. Um, you've got the technology, the software, the hardware. You know, and then the car just happens to be one of many components. So as we move closer and closer to a future like that, which is going to be in 2021, for mm-hmm. at least here yeah, in the United not States, that's not yeah. far at all, you realize that we're not going to get there unless we're prepared to bring in all these different divergent voices to make sure we've put together the most robust plan. To I can't even believe that we're saying that it's going to be 2018 in just a couple of weeks. I know. Seriously. Like, we're well into the new millennium, right? <laughs> it makes me feel old. It's, a I bit. Mean, likewise, it's, it's out of control. So we did touch on a few of these topics, but I do want to go into specifically. So I'm going to go ahead and read out the different categories on the content table that you have here on the trend report. It's the edge of reason, the activist awakening, minding the gap, the compassionate conscience. Um, and, and all of those we, we really did touch on a bit. Uh, then we have mending the mind. Uh, which we've we've learned that young people are um, they, they, they need some therapy, apparently, uh, unfortunately. And uh, then we have retail therapy. So maybe that's their therapy. Helplessly exposed technologies, tipping point, singled out and big plans for big cities. Uh, when we come back with Cheryl Connolly. You know, if you're like me, you're probably traveling a lot this time of year. And for all those frequent travelers among you, check out Sennheiser's PXC 550 Premium Travel Headphones with 32 hours of battery life, noise cancellation, and stunning Sennheiser sound. It is a perfect travel companion. And you can get it on sale during the holiday season, plus get 25% off when you visit Sennheiser.com and use code MouthMediaSen at checkout. That's MouthMedia, S-E-N-N. In the first portion of this conversation, 
We talked a little bit about how there's a bit of an awakening. So, um, you know, you more eloquently uh, spoke upon how there are there is a lot of uncertainty, right, um, politically. And now some of our uh, revered entertainers and uh, things like that are, are some fallen heroes of sorts. And there is um, a lot of uncertainty and confusion. And what's interesting in these polls is that it's not just here in the U.S. It's it's globally, right? And um, there's a, definitely an activist awakening. You could feel it unless you know you've been sleeping through everything in the last uh, few years. Um, the women's march uh, being pointed out in this, or, or referenced in this trend book as uh, a real tipping point. Um, and people care, which is nice, right? So going forward, people care. What else? What else are the younger generations in your mind? What's the kind of the silver linings going forward on how they're thinking about the world? So the the backdrop for this is under this edge of reason trend, which we really highlight the polarization of society. When you think about political shifts, and those political shifts are happening in North America, Europe, Asia, some people are very excited about the change. They're saying, finally, a step in the right direction. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have people say, oh, my God, it's the beginning of the end. Mm -hmm. How did we ever get here? And we were fascinated by how wide that gap was and how little inclination there was to try to understand someone else's point of view. I think we call out a stat in here that talk about how increasingly people are intolerant mm -hmm. of opposing viewpoints. And I think if you think about those things, it's not surprising that we would then call out a trend called Activist Awakening, where three quarters of the people we spoke to in nine different countries said that they actually believe that their own actions could influence positive change. And some of that becomes uh, that's powerful a powerful platform to yeah. understand, to be more versant on, on the changes that you think should be happening. I think of myself even, you know, as a novice political ob observer, I know more members of the cabinet this year than I've ever known any of the year before. Yeah. I follow the news and the news actually forces me to follow so many <laughs> of these stories. But that's part of that engagement. You know, you can't engage if you don't know. And so whether you're happy about the happy about the changes or horrified by the changes, people are wrapped with attention about where is this going and how might I affect its direction? Unfortunately, it's the most entertaining reality television, um, meaning the political climate and everything that's going around, in the, in, even in the in the professional climate. Well, uh, you know, the, you, I love that you talk about the the social inequity or gender inequity because the Me Too movement is something of a watershed yeah. moment, and yeah. you know, a lot of people call it a day of reckoning. We were. It's starting to hit finance now too, and that, that is, uh, to me, I'm I'm only projecting that to be the the real tipping point. And as a woman, and I imagine that a lot of your w women listeners will kind of say, I'm not I expected really, this. Yeah, they're not. Well, no I'm not really surprised. surprised. I'm not really shocked. I think, you know, a lot of the women I know have their own story. Mm -hmm. What we're surprised by is the momentum yeah. that is surrounding this. And I can't help but wonder, will this be enough to bring about change? You know, I hope so. What else? How much more inertia do we need? Seriously. Well, I think it's interesting, though, because 
there is a there's a fear that as more and more allegations kind of raise to the to the level right of the credibility of the actual claims that, that now are start yeah could we become numb to it or do we start to do we start to lump it all into one uh, label when they're really quite different I mean there are there is yep. uh, sexual discrimination sexual harassment sexual violence and they're all quite different you know I think some of the most egregious cases what you see is the sexual violence and those are the ones that um, have been headline news you mm -hmm. know and if inequity didn't exist between the genders there would not have been an environment that would allow that type of exploitation to happen in the first place in Alabama's election that's going on right now and you have the headline that's, that says an alleged child molester versus the Democratic candidate. I don't know that I'm, I'm so curious to see what shakes out over there. Um, but I don't want to get too, too far down that rabbit hole of, of politics. But uh, with the Me Too movement, I surely, surely, surely hope that um, it catalyzes real change and, and a shift or a real shift, not even a change a complete shift in how our culture operates. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and you're seeing these movements, you know, there, there are companies that are supporting um, social, uh, I guess, you know, th this activist movement, I guess. So Patagonia in the U.S., Love they it. are Everling. actually closed on Election Day, which is tremendous. Mm -hmm. um, we have in the U.K., a coffee company called Kenko, which you reference, is um, is doing coffee versus gangs, which the program's designed to combat gangs in Honduras, which is tremendous. And then in India, um, so along with the Me Too movement, um, India has been really shattered lately with a number of very high uh, profile and public um, violence cases or rape cases. Um, that have traditionally kind of been wiped under, you know, kind of brushed under the bed. Um, and now you're really seeing a big, big voice emerging there. And, and Tata T, which I'm assuming is the Tata Corporation uh, or attached to Tata Corporation. I don't think they'd be able to get away with that in India if it wasn't. Um, launched a campaign urging people to become um, preactive on the issue of uh, women's safety. Um, so... Let's it, let's take it to company responsibility. Um, so I, that's actually yeah. a perfect segue into it. So I was in New Delhi earlier this year, India, my first visit to India for Ford's City of Tomorrow Summit. Mm -hmm. And we spent a lot of time talking about the future of transportation. And when we said, what are the what are the underlying foundational pieces that you need when you start talking about it? So we want it to be sustainable. We want it to be affordable and we need it to be accessible. And what that means is like right now when a woman rides on public transportation in India, it's sometimes so crowded that either intentionally or inadvertently she can mm -hmm. find herself being groped. You know, if you can come up with new solutions, give people a little bit more space, improve the light. Nobody accidentally gets groped. So we just want to make sure that these that that when we think about the solutions, you're thinking about how do we make sure that, you know, a woman traveling in these parts of the world feel safe, that they mm -hmm. have accessible options. Um, and that is a daunting challenge because you're talking about a whole societal cultural shift. Yeah. 
um, without a doubt. Um, so now this all this activism and this restlessness all kind of melds into this next portion of uh, the book, which is Mending the Mind. I was uh, startled um, at, 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 this, at this poll is that I should take better care of my emotional well-being. Um, age group number one, the youngest age group, 82% agree with that statement. Um, and then to follow that up, I feel more stressed than I did a year ago. Same bracket, 65% of younger um, folks that were profiled here um, agree with that statement. Another one, social media makes me doubt myself. This is, I mean, it's... I. I've been really lucky personally not to have to identify with this, though I empathize with these figures, right? I understand that this is realities, but to see it written down on a page like this, what do you do from here as a company? I think Ford is one of many companies that are starting to recognize that mental well-being goes along with physical health. I mean, for a very long time. So do you throw a meditation studio in your we office? Actually, we actually did a <laughs> uh, meditation yoga kind of company-wide thing uh, called Wonderlust. Well, actually, it was, in, it was in our Dearborn offices where they brought out yoga mats. And we've mm-hmm. never done anything like that before. But it's important because the World Health Organization would tell you that um, – we're at unprecedented levels of anxiety and depression. And for a lot of the reasons that you just mentioned, mm-hmm. constant connectivity, always being on demand, social media questioning, you know, our, the decisions we make, our, our social currency. Um, you have all these changes that are going on in the world of, you know, who wouldn't be overwhelmed by all those changes. Yeah. And one of the easiest things that you can do to mend the mind. Sleep. Yes. Are you serious? Sleep. Sleep yeah. is, you know, such an underrated thing that oh can help God, improve. So important. It can help you not only improve your general health, it can help you lose weight. A lot mm-hmm. of people that suffer from um, being overweight is, is just Maybe in part that's the messaging you need to send out because more people will be like, oh, shit, all I got to do is sleep. All right. And, you know, I, I think about and I think we all know these people, these people that would never think would never, ever skip a day at the gym. Yeah. But they don't think twice about trying to get by on less than eight hours a day. And mm-hmm. so recognizing this and employers are starting to show show patterns about this because there's cognitive studies that talk about how the, the brain works. Multitasking is a myth, yeah. you know, to achieve optimum performance from employees, you need to give them downtime. So we actually have something that I'm so excited about that they started in Ford this past six months. Under the helm of our new CEO, Jim Hackett, we have instituted a weekly program called Curious Minds. Okay. And it's like our own version of a, a mini TED Talk. It's, you know, last about 20 minutes to an hour. And the speakers come from inside the company and outside the company. But the purpose of this program is to give people license to think about something that has nothing to do with their job. Mm. And it has a real business function behind it because by doing that, you create a culture of curiosity. And if you establish that, then you are the building blocks for becoming a true innovator. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, there is some really practical reasons to open that up, but it is allowing the brain to operate in different ways, not to constantly be measured by your output and, you know, following the stringent guidelines. So I'm going to take away this from that comment is that uh, as a company to really maximize the benefit. Now, this is selfishly to bottom line, right, or innovation or whatever you might 
Dima's success is to maximize the people that are in your organization. You need to give space. You need to to give that um, that moment to to explore. And if you do, it'll turn around whether it's in innovative ideas, um, whether it's in more productive uh, workflow. Uh, I mean, it it's known to have massive impact. And you can see this in some of the uh, top companies to work for. A lot of them offer paid sabbaticals. If yeah. you look at the top 100 companies to work for, I think 20 to 25 percent of them offer fully paid sabbaticals. Mm-hmm. Now, anecdotally, you, sabbatical you know, is the equivalent of vacation. Uh, in addition to vacation, mm-hmm. so an extended period of time for personal growth or enrichment, mm. and so. Companies like Nike offer paid sabbaticals. Um, in fact, I have a friend that worked there who told me that the company takes it so seriously that they disconnect you from the server because they really want you to get away from work, yeah. disconnect your mind, engage. And I think we all know this because this is why sometimes our best ideas come to us when we're in the shower or right when we're about to fall asleep. It's when we're not trying to think so hard about doing better, more sophisticated, more innovative work that we, our best ideas come to us. Yeah. Now on the retail therapy side, so let's go uh, into mending the mind on the retail side of things. Uh, I think that the main takeaway that I found here is that uh, people, uh, especially again, I, I'm focusing on the younger generation, the 18 to 29 bracket, because that's um, that seems to be the sweet spot with most, and not of course all, but 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 most um, businesses today, um, for obvious reasons, right? They're the the next um, uh, dominant um, purchasing power group. They're the future. <clears throat> they are the future, just like women. Um, but most people still like going to stores. I love that number. Yeah. Right. You know, I've been talking about it on our fashion is your business show forever. People like going to shows to stores. So our our study revealed that. Uh, 54% of this younger generation, 18 to 29 years of age, say that's actually a luxury to go to a physical store, which kind of surprised me. There's so much out there, you know, these headlines that say that uh, brick and mortar is dead, that the internet is taken over. They've been saying that for 10 years now. Well, seven to eight years at least. Well, and you look at some, you know, Apple just... um, such an admirable brand, they've kind of changed their whole concept of retail. They have dropped mm-hmm. the name store from their, their retail outlets. Because they're experiences, right? Because they're creating experiences. Mm-hmm. In fact, what they're doing, and I find it really admirable, I've heard Angela Arendt talk about it at their CMO. She said, what we're creating is a town hall yeah. where people that have shared affinities and passion can come oh, together and exchange knowledge. Because Apple, for instance, sells more cameras than any other company Mm -hmm. in the world, even those that are exclusively manufacturing cameras. And they said, why don't we bring these people together and teach them how to take better pictures, you know, or if you're Mm -hmm. an illustrator, how to use this app. And so I think that's interesting. Yeah, they have classes there. They have all kinds of good stuff there. And you look at Restoration Hardware has Mm -hmm. kind of expanded their their showrooms into this experiential moment. So now they you have a restaurant-like experience there. Nordstrom's Mm -hmm. has done it. Nordstrom's has Nordstrom's Local, where they have showrooms and you can take 
things that you bought online and return them, they'll return it for you. And even Ford right here in town, um, down at the Oculus World Trade Center, yeah. we have the Ford Hub where you and I were not so long ago. And, you know, there's not a single car in the showroom. Yeah. There's no there is a sled, though. There is a, there is a sled just for the holidays. A fancy looking sled. Just yeah. for the holidays. But it actually starts to share with people a vision about what the future of mobility could look like. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a really interesting touch point. Yeah. And, you know, you're doing a great amount of community events. I mean, we've been fortunate enough to do a couple of Mouth Media Live events, uh, of course, with uh, featuring companies like Postmates and Chariot. It's, um, you know, people just love the energy of the space. Yeah, you know, uh, a good friend of mine who is touted as uh, one of the more creative minds in pop-up retail strategy, uh, Melissa Gonzalez, she launched a store in Chicago called In Real Life. And it is just comprised of, they don't hold any stock there. It's just basically to, to gather consumer insights for multi-brands that are all digitally native, right? Mm -hmm. So Lisa, um, mattresses, and, and so on and such like that. And yeah, the stores are not going anywhere. People enjoy going to them. It's just that the use case is is different when you talk about the overall brand messaging and the consumer lifestyle uh, uh, cycle and all that good stuff. One um, of my favorite stores is right here in Chelsea, New York. Oh, um, what do you got? And it's called Story. Oh, Are you of familiar course. with Story? Absolutely. You know, so a pop-up retail outlet mm -hmm. that changes its Every look, month. its feel, everything, you know? Every month. And Rachel Sheckman, the owner of it, mm -hmm. does it. She approaches it with each... Um, I don't know, offering or season of a new thing is like a magazine editorial yeah. so that you never get bored. You go in and everything is new and different. It's amazing. Um, all right. So retail is not dead. Not it's dead. just changing. It's evolving in its use case. Um, I was over at a breakfast with uh, Gensler, I think mm -hmm. the architect firm, and they were talking. I really love the term that they said for pop up. Um, instead of pop up stores, they used the term agile experiences. Oh, I yeah, like it was brilliant. So that was the first time I heard that. So I'm hoping that that takes off a little bit. Um, so now we're going to go into um, a little bit of the helplessly exposed. And we're going to breeze through in the um, in the interest of time. But helplessly exposed is that people actually don't or again, when I say people, I'm going younger. So the younger younger demo does not care about giving you their information, their personal information. And that has been conditioned over digitally. I mean, they are digitally native, right? Mm -hmm. So, at the end of the day, like even myself, I'm 36. I don't, I don't care about giving my information out anymore. I really don't. I've, I've become completely numb. What are the perils and what are the benefits there? So, I think everything I do is done through the lens of the consumer. So, mm -hmm. let's talk about it from a consumer standpoint. Yeah, I think consumer readily hands over their information. Yeah. Give me if, a better experience. If the benefit, yeah. if the benefits are direct and clear, right? You know, but then you will have um, evoked a deep sense of mistrust if you abuse that information that I've shared with you mm -hmm. um, or as something as benign as having the wrong information you know so when you have you know it's been a long time since I've received a like telemarketer call at my um, home but it used to be like if you can't pronounce my first name or last name correctly then I don't have time for you <laughs> I don't have time for you and that's yeah, where you start absolutely. to see some of this information not being handled properly you know that they show that it's just aggregated in a way without any sort of uh, meaningful grounding of it. There are those, as you say, and the thing that have kind of given up with the notion that there, that privacy could be maintained at all in this world. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I'm quite that cynical, but I think brands have an opportunity to really distinguish themselves by being trusted stewards of what they do with, 
with the information. Because when someone does share that much of, much of themselves with you, it is a privilege, something to never be taken for granted. That, that's the helplessly exposed, I guess, section is, the, is the, the, the brushstroke over there that I gathered. Now, technology's tipping point. This is Ford is right in the center of this conversation. This deals with artificial intelligence and this deals with autonomous vehicles. Um, people are scared. It even says it here. I'm, I'm, I'm reading this. People are scared. Uh, what do you tell them? There's a mixed bag, right? So when we asked these nine different countries whether they thought artificial intelligence would do more harm than good, half said yes. Yeah. The countries that were the highest were India and the Middle East, um, about 61% saying they were worried. Uh, China, only 38%. So yeah, the yeah, variances yeah, globally are yeah. quite significant. Uh, and if you take that insight and then take it over to this question about are you hopeful about an autonomous self-driving future china's at the top they say 83 percent. yes we're hopeful yeah but india's close to the top too that is wild 81 percent. because nobody wants to drive there no. it's a oh my god it's a shit show well it's it's the most populous countries in the world yeah and so not surprisingly the uh the gridlock the congestion is right. the most egregious it takes hours to get anywhere you were just there in delhi delhi is the is notoriously bad for traffic it was not great. And, and as, not. A West, as a Westerner's experience, like it's not just the cars that hold you up. There are cows that somehow are meandering their yeah. way through streets. Oh, yeah. And you're like, where did that cow come from? Yeah, they're better at crossing streets than I am over there. Now, I find it interesting because even when I was there, India was very concerned about an autonomous driving future because they are worried about it taking away employment opportunities. Hmm. So their attitudes about about autonomous vehicles could still be very exciting, but they also are thinking through a couple steps going, hey, right now there are a good segment of people that are employed just to become drivers. Correct. Because the traffic is so egregious, those who can afford mm -hmm. turn the driving responsibility over to somebody else and they sit in the back seat and they right. you just spend their time otherwise. So I think there's some mix there. Autonomous feature is one of my favorite areas to discuss because I love to kind of dispel the myths surrounding it. You know, today there are already autonomous vehicles on the road mm -hmm. to a certain extent. If you if you are in a vehicle that has adaptive cruise control, blind mm -hmm. spot alert, parking, lane departure warning, mm -hmm. active system park, active system parking, we have all of those things on Ford vehicles right now. In many ways, you're already driving an autonomous vehicle. Now, to be clear, mm -hmm. you're not taking your hands off your off the wheel, your eyes off the road, you. You, um, well, when you park, you actually do take your hands off the wheel, but you still remain in control of the vehicle. But those are the building blocks of an autonomous future. What I think a lot of people miss is that bringing this into reality, though, will not be decided exclusively by OEMs like Ford or any OEM for that matter. Yeah. You have to have regulations, litigator, municipalities, uh, privacy and security, all those things. We have to figure out that puzzle. And I think we are excited about the enormous opportunity that comes with an autonomous future, but we also recognize that it comes with an even greater level of responsibility. So you have to be very measured on how you go about doing it. And according to these numbers, when you have people in China and India, over 80% saying, yes, bring it on, we can't wait. But you compare that to the U.S. where it's half, 50%. And I think in Europe, the numbers are 45 
uh, for the UK and only 44% of those in Germany excited about mm-hmm. this future, you realize that it's going to happen according to geography, where the context makes the most sense. And so I don't think there'll ever be this light switch moment where you wake up and you go, oh my gosh, the whole fleet turned over. Right. You know, as Americans, we love our cars. We love the thrill of the drive. There are still many speed demons out there. But autonomous doesn't mean that you can't drive your car anymore. True. You can still drive it. And then you could f- flip on the future, right? When I want to read a book or get be productive in traffic. In theory, yes, it could look like that. You know yeah. exactly how it'll play out. We've announced that for 2021, when we bring our first autonomous vehicles to the U.S., what we'll have is vehicles that will be applied in a commercial application, so either ride hailing or package delivery. And in fact, just last week, we announced that we would invest $900 million in a Michigan facility to actually mm-hmm. where we'll eventually start building these vehicles. So it's coming, you know, whether you're, Sure or not sure, it's on. It's it's coming. I can't even imagine what your PL looks like. Mm. You just said nine hundred million dollars to oh, we just announced, you know, throw nine hundred million dollars to that facility real quick. I don't know <laughs> you think that we we don't think that's chump change. I mean we No of those course are, I, I can't imagine that that's chump change for any company, but those are I mean, serious investments for it's us a and real number. To retool a plant <laughs> and to think about it says that we're yeah. we're all in. We're all in. We believe that we believe in the possibilities of this platform. You know, I, w- I want to take a quick moment to, to point out um, that you have a lot of data around um, singled out section. Um, and that just shows the, the cultural, I guess, um, projection on single folks versus uh, people that are married and what marriage means and all that good stuff. And why why is that relevant here? Well, I think it was 2004, maybe 2005, that for the first time, in America's history, there are more single people than married people. And many other advanced economy countries have followed suit. Underneath that is education, right? So the more educated your female population, uh, the more likely she mm-hmm. uh, can survive independently outside of marriage. No longer do women have to view marriage as part of the equation for long-term financial security. And there's also, you know, rampant divorce and all these other things. So People are really changing this notion about what does life happily ever after look like? Does it mean you have to settle down, fall in love, move out to the suburbs, get married, start a family? You know, not anymore. And particularly young people are pioneering new paths. At the very least, they're postponing marriage and parenthood. And this this survey or the, the trend report suggests that, you know, that's, not going to change. What's interesting, though, is that you do see this demographic shifts, but attitudes haven't followed as quickly. So we have half of the half of the population that's single, uh, more than half, mm-hmm. but people still maintain that single people are married are treated differently than married people. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite comes from China. So China has had some interesting demographic shifts. You know, they used to have ninety nine percent of their population was married, and that has become uh, less so, but it's only dropped down to ninety five. Percent, mm-hmm. but China—it's so deeply ingrained in their culture that a young woman who reaches the age of twenty-five who has yet to be married could be maligned or referred to as a leftover woman or an old shoe. And an so, old shoe is the direct translation of whatever word it is in Mandarin or Cantonese. I, 
left it, it is a common <laughs> it's a common colloquialism i don't know exactly how Fair they enough. do it, but the, the, i think the leftover woman is for an unwary woman and the old shoe is for divorced women uh-huh. if if memory serves me correctly but women are really trying to stand up for themselves and they're saying that shouldn't be the case and so there was a social media movement called uh, hashtag change your destiny and so you don't have to be complete you know you can have a fulfilling life without finding a man and against a backdrop of economic expansion why wouldn't women try to find all you know find their own career aspirations mm-hmm. before deciding to settle down for a car company you know you go well why why would you care why would that matter yeah. to ford motor company but we're in the business of helping people move from point a to point b and a lot of those people are families. So if the family yeah. structure is changing, the definition of a nuclear family has evolved, then that might change the makeup of what segments we play in. Are we still working in people movers, you know, that can move seven people? Mm-hmm. Or are you in the, you know, four-seater sedan, two-door two sedan? Right. So understanding uh, how those shifts might change could eventually affect, you know, what we produce and where we produce it. You know. And going to India on on this, um, not necessarily just single versus marriage, but they is more from a population density and traffic density vantage point is that um, or economic feasibility. But they released a car called the Nano. Um, oh, sure. Yeah, I remember famously that. failed badly. It was a very inexpensive, tiny little thing that you could buggy around um, town with and. What went wrong there? You'd have to ask a car person. I'm so <laughs> not the car person. But I do understand the mindset is that you have um, many people that were living below a middle class mm-hmm. income level, poverty level by U.S. definitions, and they couldn't afford uh, the vehicle at a price that sold here. So trying to come up with a very price accessible vehicle seems to make a lot of sense. But then you get back to the fundamental problem of adding more vehicles to a road that's already very congested might not be the best solution. Yeah. I guess when data goes wrong sometimes, is it company's responsibility? Is it government's responsibility? Whose responsibility is it to teach people relevant skills for tomorrow's future? Because right now our education system is not providing the right foundation. And you could disagree with me. That is my op-ed right there. It's a tough question. And I think there, I hesitate because there's just no easy solution, right? It's so People are scared about that too. Yeah. They think that their jobs are going to go away. And these are adults. So I remain forever optimistic. You right. know, I think we talked about this the last time I saw you is that in the 90s, there was this notion, the biggest fear that... Uh, futurist predicted society would be facing is what would you do with all your leisure time? You know, we (laughs) we should be in a paperless office right now. Computers were supposed to make us all paperless. And none of those things happened. You know, I I think that the future plays out in ways that are tough to imagine. But behind all of that, I do believe in the resilience of human spirit to adapt, to adapt Mm -hmm. and adjust in a way that's meaningful, because I think it is human nature to feel needed, to be productive, to play a role um, in some sort of meaningful work. So to wrap this up, and this has been fascinating, and reading through this is fascinating. Um, First, where can people access this information online? You can go to fordtrends.com. 
Okay. And it's all listed over there. They can download mm-hmm. it just as I did. And if they're inclined, they can actually Google and find all of the issues are out there yeah. uh, through search engines. So you can go back to 2013 and find every edition that we've put out since. So if you were to, um, I guess, uh, make a, a broad brushstroke of what you've learned in, in this trend report or compiling this trend report, what would that be? What's your reflection on it? That when you think about consumers, you have to really center your conversation around values. What are their values? What do they stand for? When a person decides to spend money on your product or do business with your brand, you have to realize that at some point they're asking themselves, what does it say about me when I choose to do business with you? And so the clearer your identity, the more authentic you are, the easier it is for them to decide whether they're the right brand for them. Fantastic. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us in studio. It's been uh, tremendous. Uh, do you have anything on the calendar that is coming up that people can maybe um, dive deeper into uh, your thought leadership or maybe get a chance to to say hello? Oh, that's sweet. Uh, you know, I think that we will... Ford will have a lot to say at the North American International Auto Show, which mm-hmm. is, I think, the third. That's at the Javits week in Center, January. Right? Uh, no, it's it's in Detroit. It's in good old Detroit. Ah, sorry about um, that. So it is the <laughs> it is the Motor City. It know. is the Motor City. It is the Motor all. City. So stay tuned. You also, even before that, you'll hear some interesting points of view on uh, this this all this technology, the tipping point uh, that will be, I think, at the center. Uh, excuse me, at CES in Las Vegas. Fantastic. And is there a depository of the videos of uh, your speaking engagements uh, online somewhere? God, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on. I hope not. You know, (laughs) I hope not. Um, All right, so just Google Cheryl Connolly. That's with the (laughs) E-L-L-Y at the end, and you'll find all this great stuff on YouTube. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. Really a a fascinating chat. I encourage you uh, that are listening with us. Uh, first of all, thank you for sticking with us, and um, to to really go to go to Ford's um, website and see all the different initiatives that they're working on um, to participate in the future of mobility. Uh, and uh, the trends report is it really is chock full of very awe inspiring, head scratching uh, data that I think you'd enjoy um, rummaging through. So. Thank you, Cheryl, again uh, for joining us. Thank you. The pleasure was all mine. Yeah. We and are next so time ex- in New York, I hope you stop by Mouth Media again. We will definitely stop by Mouth Media. We're really <laughs> excited by this opportunity. So thank you for having us. Cheers. This has been Travel Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for the show or to become a sponsor, email us at podcast at travelisyourbusiness.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Travel Biz Show. That's Travel B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, travelisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.